The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. fantastic to sort of see you know what things people are particularly struck by and what interests them and you know trying to perhaps change their perceptions of things that was historian anna whitelock talking from english heritage's history live festival about the value of meeting readers at history events history is sort of living live exciting thing that you can participate in and you just feel close to the sort of heartbeat of history and it sounds like a total cliche to say it but here you really do feel it and that was english heritage's chief executive simon thurley Hello and welcome to a special edition of the History Extra podcast, recorded at History Live at Kelmarsh Hall in Northamptonshire. My name is Matt Elton and I'm books editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. Our August issue is on sale now, sporting a new look and features on rebels in Roman Britain, immigration in medieval England and the downfall of Mary, Queen of Scots. You can find the issue in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of all our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com slash digital. English Heritage's Festival of History, now called History Live, returned to Kelmarsh Hall in Northamptonshire on 20th and 21st of July, following its cancellation last year due to torrential rain. As well as visitors from around Europe and thousands of reenactors, leading historians and authors shared their expertise in a series of lectures. The BBC History magazine team was also in attendance, running the lecture tent, and we managed to catch up with many of the participants throughout the weekend. I started by talking to Anna Whitelock, who was visiting the festival to talk about her most recent book, Elizabeth's Bedfellows, and why she thought the festival was so important. Well, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's at the end of the day, it's like literally bringing history alive. Um, you know, the reenactments, the talks, and I mean, what's really striking to me is it's such kind of cross-generational. I mean, there's so many young kids. You know, I've just had a kind of must have been a sort of seven or eight-year-old girl coming up wanting to sign her book, and she's going to read a copy of the book, which is great. And so the fact that you can talk to kids at that age, and you know, some of them are doing you know history at school, and some of them just you know really interested. Um, so I mean, it's a, you know, it's just a really kind of family event, and you know, there's lots of fun, but also a lot of historical content and knowledge being shared, and yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. And in terms of the lectures, it must be nice for you to meet the people who are reading and buying your books. I guess. Yeah, I mean, for me. I just, I mean, I love it because, I mean, people genuinely are, you know, enthusiastic. The audience is knowledgeable, you know, they come with questions, they come interested, they come wanting to learn, they're very, you know, engaged. Um, yeah, and it's fantastic to sort of see, you know, what things people are particularly struck by and what interests them and, you know, trying to perhaps change their perceptions of things. So That's cool, that's interesting. I mean, are there any, any t- like, topics or areas that you think people are perhaps having the wrong opinion of or you think it is useful to hear their thoughts about? I mean, I think all. I mean, I think with the topic like Elizabeth, I mean, people 
always have some sense of her. So in a way, the challenge, I suppose, is to say something that they don't know. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, you know, that's it's one of those. I think some talks, you know, you really are talking to, to people about stuff they don't know anything about. Generally, with the Tudors, they always know something. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it might be that they kind of know the headline, perhaps stereotypes or the caricatures. Yeah. But yeah. so um, in some ways, that's a sort of challenge to yeah, say okay. something different. Uh, but it's also good because they kind of, you know, they have a bit of background knowledge for you to start with. Okay, that's cool. Talking about the reenactments, I mean, there's a lot of military yeah. stuff that gets reenacted. Is there any kind of social Tudor stuff that you'd like to see reenacted, maybe? Or well, I mean, I think in a way the the sort of. I mean, at Hampton Court, they do a really good sort of uh, interpretation where, you know, Henry meets people in his kind of private apartments and you get to kind of see, uh, you know, how everybody's trying to pay court to the to the, the monarch. And so I think, you know, to sort of have a kind of reenactment of potentially, like, you know, the trials in history, you know, thinking about, you know, whether Mary, Queen of Scots, the evidence whether she should be executed, Anne Boleyn's trial yeah, would it be true. a great reenactment. I mean, I think the sort of big historical uh, you know set piece trials would be fantastic I mean Charles the first all of those things so I think both sort of you know the legal trials and of course we do have records so we could you know reenact those in quite a lot of detail but also stuff you know some of the kind of court entertainments court dances yeah. all the etiquette of, of dancing at court um, so I, I mean I think in a way it's slightly you know a little dominated by battles and I'd like to see a, a bit more of a kind of social and political reenactment and also the fun you know okay. trying to bring the kind of court entertainments to life a bit that's cool yeah I mean what sense do we get of the state of England's heritage industry I suppose from events like this well I mean I think there's a huge public appetite for history and I think there's a there's a public appetite to be entertained but there's also a huge public appetite for knowledge and content and I think something like this is fantastic and you know that people can come you know in the sense of it being a festival I mean they can come and spend a day here or a weekend here they can you know they can eat they can you know enjoy walking around looking in uh, reenactments but then they can also hear you know really high quality lectures so I think you know the fact that it shows that people aren't just wanting a kind of you know an easy day out they want to be pushed and challenged a bit and you know I think that you know quite literally history is alive and kicking in this country and I think events like this you know really really show um, the appeal of it across the generations which is really really heartening I think actually how about you what are your plans for the rest of the afternoon have you well I'm gonna have a wander around I mean I haven't actually uh, seen I don't think I've ever seen a reenactment and so I might go and have a look I'm slightly dubious about reenactments but um, I'm gonna see I'm gonna have a look and um, yeah just kind of have a wander around and sort of see who's here really I haven't been here before so it's all a bit of a it's you know it's just a really fascinating thing to watch and see really so um, yeah really enjoyed it that was Anna Whitelock. Elizabeth's Bedfellows is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Another author sharing his thoughts and meeting visitors throughout the weekend was fiction writer Giles Christian, whose Raven and Bleeding Land book series vividly explore Viking England and the English Civil War. I spoke to him about the process of writing historical fiction and the value of reenactments. How has the day been for you, I guess, first of all? Yeah, it's been amazing. I was, um, my talk was first thing in the morning, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I was slightly concerned that maybe people wouldn't have arrived yeah, yeah. Uh, yet. But um, no, fortunately they had, and it was, it was packed, and it was great fun. Everyone was a friendly audience. I suppose if you're here, you either like history, or you like books, or you like both. So from a historical writer's point of view, you cool. couldn't ask for a more friendly audience. Fantastic. I mean, how useful is it for you, meeting people and you know, talking about your books? Well, it's really, it's really interesting to me 
meet the meet, meet the readers for one thing, but also all the reenactors because it, with writing historical novels, it's very useful for me to play with all the kit and spend time with Fairfax Battalion, the English Civil War Society, for example, and and put on the back and breastplates and helmet and and uh, see what it all feels like. Um, and the same with uh, the Viking stuff as well. And I'm, I'm off in a little while to go and find a, a Danax because um, okay, cool. it's essential for my research, don't you know? That's, <laughs> nice, what, that's nice. what I'm telling the wife anyway. <laughs> that's good. Um, are there any uh, periods of history that you think aren't reenacted as much as you would expect or anything that you'd like to see done that isn't, I suppose? I think when you come to History Live, it's everything is going on here, isn't it? And I've been coming for years now. Um, I was coming before I was coming sort of in a work capacity as a writer. I was just coming because it was great fun. And, oh, cool. And my little girl, she's um, three and a half now, nearly four. And she, the first time she came was it's still in her mummy's tummy. And I was Aww. listening to the canon from the... You had a Napoleonic um, reenactment uh, that year. And, and, and now she's here here again. And so I don't know if there's anything that I would like to see more of. Obviously, I, I love the Viking stuff and mm. the Civil War stuff. But my next period, on which I can't mention yet, because I'm going to write about... <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see if that that's represented in a couple of years' time. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, how do you choose the periods that you write about? I, I think you just have to be... Somebody asked me this earlier and they said, do the characters come first and then you choose a period to set it in or do yeah. you decide you're going to write about a certain period and put the story inside that? Oh. With me... I think you've got to be passionate about the subject in the first place because of the research that's involved. You've got to spend so much time learning about the period that you, it needs to be a period that you're interested in or fascinated by. Otherwise, writing it is just going to be a massive chore. Yeah. So for me, it's the, the period comes first, then I write the story, but then very, very soon the characters within the story, then they become the story and they take over. Okay. And, yeah. and the, the period sort of fades into the background mm. in a way. Mm. Um, so that's the way it works for me. Okay, cool. And how long does it take to do that research and the whole writing process I mean is it something that you can yeah the research is probably sort of 60% of of the job okay okay and then it's and then you've got to try and not put all of that research in the book you know it's, yeah. it's it can be tempting for for authors to try and prove how much work and how much effort they put into learning it all yeah. and, and throw it all into the book no one wants to read that well if they did they'd read a non-fiction book my my job is to entertain my job is to transport the reader after a hard day's work to a period of history that they might be interested in and um, so I, I see it very much as entertainment doesn't mean I don't do my research and do my homework yeah. and try and get it all right but it's certainly not uh, the story has got to be the thing that, uh, that, that people have got to enjoy reading it yeah. yeah I mean talking about the whole fiction kind of reenactment thing what would you say to people who kind of question the kind of accuracy of that is that important is that the most important thing about doing something like a reenactment would you say about the reenactment it's, yeah it is important I, I do think it is because people take take people come to these events to learn about history and people read historical fiction to learn about history so I think that you have a, a certain duty and responsibility to, to get it right okay. and but the thing about these events the reenactors they know so much about yeah. their period and, they know, and, and the kit that they're wearing and they're very very good at explaining to the, the public why they're wearing certain things and, yeah. and, uh, and so they've, they've got they've got to, they've got to get that right yeah okay. Reenactments, of course, made up another part of the History Live event. My fellow section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, headed out throughout the weekend to talk to some of the people exploring life in different periods of England's history. So, what's your name, sir? I didn't My name catch... is Paul Mortimer. Mortimer, OK. And what have you been doing this weekend? So, what, what are you doing here at the festival? Well, we're a group called Wolf Yedinas, mm-hmm. which means, in Old English, wolf goats. Yep. And we're trying to portray the 
Anglo-Saxons from the time of Sutton Hoo, which is the late 6th, early 7th century. Yep. And one of the things we're trying to do is to show people how much colour and glamour and uh, how much bling there was. Yeah. Can you describe for us what you're wearing for the listeners? <laughs> well, I'm wearing... All, all the equipment that I'm wearing comes from the grave Mound 1 at Sutton Hoo. Right. And uh, it's, as you can see, uh, and the listeners can't, but it's, <laughs> it's mainly garnet and gold. Yeah. And... Um, the, the textiles that we're wearing are very colourful, tablet woven braid. Yep. And uh, because we're uh, the, the people at Sutton who were the Woofings, probably, that, that's, that's their family name, right. which means people of the wolf, and there are several wolf emblems within the grave, we wear wolf coats. I see, okay. Oh, right, and that's an actual wolf you've got draped around your shoulders there? So it is, yes. Oh, you've even got the head. Yes. Right. <laughs> and there's that, that's a leather leather jacket you're wearing there. Yeah. We know they wore jackets of this style. Yeah. Um, and we found that, that some there are graves which show them made in wool. We don't know they're made of leather, but okay. uh, this is uh, an experimental coat. And what about your necklace that you got? Is that teeth on these there? These are wolf teeth from this wolf. Oh, right. Okay. And um, these are the gods, emblems of the gods. You've got a hammer for Thunor, who yep. we named Thursday after. You've got... Uh, a little phallic god oh, yes. who probably is called Ing, Ingwe to the old English and uh, there's a, a little spearhead which represents Chu, who we name Tuesday after Right, okay, fascinating and on your feet? Uh, well these are leather shoes yep. and because there's actually not many Anglo-Saxon shoes from our period that survive in the grave these are actually very late Roman shoes Right, okay so everything you're wearing is sort of based on things, on, on what we everything, know? Yes, yes, it's based on the best evidence that we have. And what would you wear on your head with this, this type of outfit? Well, I have my helmet, my Sutton Hoo helmet. That's, uh, yes, I recognise that. Um, uh, and how much would something like that weigh to, to Well, to that wear? weighs three, kilo, uh, three kilos. So it's quite, quite, that quite heavy? It's uh, okay. When yeah. you're wearing it, it's fine. Yeah. If you hold it in your hand, it feels heavy. But when you've okay. got it on your head, it's absolutely comfortable. And, and visibility. you can see very well. Yeah, I was going to say. And you can breathe very well. So it's quite well designed then? Oh, yeah, it's a very well designed helmet. In fact, it's, it's uh, much better vision from that than you got with lots of the later medieval helms. Okay. And then you've got a very large shield underneath it. So that is that typical again of the type of... No, not, not terribly typical. This is at the high end of shields. And it's, right. As, you can, as far as we know, it's actually the most exquisite shield uh, from the period, certainly that survived. Yeah. And as you can see, it's covered in what looks to be gold. Yeah. In actual fact, it's the original and this one is just gilt. Right. But, um, you know, the average observer wouldn't know that. So what's your fascination with this period? What made you get into doing this? Well, it's very pretty. <laughs> and, um, it is? Uh, and it, it was also hard to reproduce, so it was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. So, but over the years, you know, we've built up uh, yeah. quite a large collection of, of items from this period. Yeah. And I hope you agree, they look very pretty. They look amazing. They look absolutely stunning. And so they're glinting in the what little sun we have got. But they look, yeah, they look amazing. Um, and what are you doing this weekend? Are you kind of taking part in any of the reenactments? No, we're just posing. You're posing. <laughs> that, that's what we do. We're just posers. <laughs> Is that what the Anglo-Saxons did? <laughs> uh, well, of course they did. But yeah. they, they probably had uh, the intention of backing up, up as well. But all our weapons are sharp, so we, we tend not to fight. Right, OK. And you've got... Um, how many of you are you in your, in your group? In the group in total, there's only about 20, 25. OK. But we, uh, we have about 15 of us here today. But we also have uh, Dave Roper, who 
made most of my kit and he's busily banging out these press plates that go on the helmet over there. And we were talking earlier actually, um, sort of off recording about your sword. Yeah. Can you just maybe describe that again because sure. we, we actually got to hold the sword and it's actually a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be. It's a jeweled hilted sword. Mm-hmm. The hilt is made of horn but it has a golden garnet pommel yeah. and lots of gold filigree and other gold fittings on the hilt. The blade is actually pattern moulded which means that it's made out of many different pieces of metal. Yep. It has a core of four rods which are alternately straight and twisted. The edge of the sword is made ideally from a much harder metal, mm-hmm. a high, high carbon steel, and uh, is tacked on separately, well, tacked on forge welding. Yeah. And the sword is actually two layers, so you've got a slightly different design on the back to the front. Okay, and what sort of, what we're looking at in terms of man hours making that? Um, probably around 600 hours. Gosh, that's a, a long time, isn't it? I mean, it's it beautiful beautiful weapon it's a, a lot of effort that's gone into that and will you be used do you use that in, in reenactments do you actually no. fight no, no. Is it, that's a proper sharp, a sword. sharp sword yeah <laughs> maybe it's probably a good idea then <laughs> Firstly, what, what group are you are you all in? Uh, well, we are from the uh, group Gordon's Living History. Okay. Uh, we are based in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and we portray Gordon Highlanders. Right. Through, well, basically their ages. Okay. Um, the reason why we do that: <laughs> uh, the first battle honor of the Gordon Highlanders was was earned in uh, Egmond op Zee, which is a place in the Netherlands. Yep. In 1799. And, um, well, that was the reason to start out in Napoleonic reenactment mm-hmm. years ago. But gradually we are looking at other periods as well. Okay. So we are here at this event for um, the Bull War, Second Bull War. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, with, it's always a bit of a hassle with firearms, so we're doing a medical display. Right, okay, so you're, <laughs> it looks like you're building like a yeah. patient at the moment, just, you're just yeah. doing some shoes up and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> So what will, you be, uh, yeah. what will you be showing with this sort of patient later on? What will well, you be doing? This is our uh, patient for the weekend. Okay. And we're building, building him back together again. Okay. Uh, we are doing stretcher drill. Right. Proper 1897 stretcher drill from the booklet. Yep. And um, yeah, well, actually, we, find out, we found out yesterday that carrying a live person is uh, pretty hard to do. <laughs> Quite. If you do it for a couple of hours. Right. So we're, so we're building this one. Does he have a name? <laughs> well, how do you name We, we call him... Private Parts. Private Parts. So what does stretcher drill look like in, in that, sort of, that era? Uh, well, basically it, didn't, it doesn't... Well, it didn't change really much. Well, of course it changed, but um, I think the, the era, the, the Boer era, was where the medical profession kind of professionalized. Mm-hmm. It was the first war for the uh, Royal Army Medical Corps. Yeah. And um, yeah, basically the, 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 the medical side of warfare was, was far more professional than, than years before. So yeah. they tried to do that on all uh, aspects of, of, of medical care, so also for stretcher, stretcher okay. bearing. And so what we can show later on is how medical soldiers or stretcher bearers mm-hmm. um, yeah, would, would carry their patient around and they can also do that in a kind of parade-like manner. Yeah. 
Okay, so we'll be demonstrating that later on, will you, yes. on the battlefield? Yeah. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> did, you, did you do that yesterday as well? We did it yesterday did as well. Did it go okay? Yeah, it, was, uh, it was good, yeah, yeah. It was good fun for us as well, because for us it's kind of tryout weekend. I can show you, I can show you the books, of course. You yeah, yeah, fantastic. So these are these are genuine, these are sort of yes. authentic books with stretch drill, 1897. It's a, a manual for stretcher drill and exercises. Yes. Well, it comes with all the photographs and ah, okay. explanation how you should carry a patient, how you should care for him. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's what we are doing this weekend, basically this book. Perfect. <laughs> That's your little, uh, your manual. The holy book. The holy book. <laughs> the holy book of stretcher drill. Brilliant. Organising Europe's largest history event is, of course, no mean feat. I spoke to John Hogan, Events Manager North for English Heritage, about what the process involves and how he sees the festival developing in the future. OK, John, so what have you been involved in doing for this year's show? Well, what we've been doing is putting 2,000 years of British history together, uh, and that really involves a huge amount of coordination with reenactors up and down the country. We've got over 2,000 individual reenactors here this weekend. Added to that, various other performers as well, whether it be the musicians providing the, the historical music, the lecturers who are providing the talks, uh, as well as all the contractors as well. You can imagine the amount of marquees and movement of equipment, uh, let alone the operational side of car parking and traffic management. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of effort that goes into this weekend. Fantastic. I mean, how long does it take to plan? When do you start planning the event? Around about 12 months okay. it takes. Um, we obviously have to have the venue, first of all. And Kelmarsh Hall is such a wonderful site for us, uh, for its location and its infrastructure and of course its historical setting as well. You're hearing the backdrop of a one Wonderful, you know, historic house. Uh, so, really, it takes 12 months to plan okay. all round. I mean, following last year's event, um, was it a decision to change the name? Was that based on what happened last year, or was that? No, we were undergoing a rebranding of English Heritage, finding our position in the marketplace of leisure opportunities for visitors and public at large. Uh, and really, History Live fits our new brand of bringing history to life. Uh, just, so, yeah. really, it's part of uh, a refresh. Uh, of, of that enterprise, uh, which re-energises the organisation, re-energises its public face, uh, the way it presents itself, uh, and it's really all part of all that. That's fantastic. Um, what challenges do you think Heritage faces at the moment? Well, in, in terms of staging this event, there's a huge amount of challenge because uh, we all know what the weather was like last year, so you have to plan and prepare uh, and make ready. And um, we're fortunate, of course, the weather's been kind to us this weekend. Uh, very hot on setting up, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges we have. Um, I suppose the other challenge is always just keeping heritage in, in the public mind as well. Um, English Heritage's mission is to, well, to encourage people people to care, to enjoy and to value the heritage and bringing it to life really does enliven that, it, it creates that memory, it creates that moment where people can remember where they were when they saw William the Conqueror take the battlefield or where they saw, um, you know, where they heard you know, about new discoveries in archaeology and so forth. It creates these moments and hopefully that's what we're doing this weekend. Uh, and if we're doing that and encouraging people to come and witness it, then hopefully they'll go away enjoying, caring, visiting properties, understanding properties, uh, and, and hopefully that cycle will continue for you know, generations to come. 
I mean, what would you say to people who say events like this are too heavy on the entertainment and not heavy enough on the history? Um, there's always going to be conceits. Uh, clearly, we're not in 1513. You know, yeah. uh, so there's always going to be conceits. But really, as I said before about capturing that moment, if, if through entertaining people we are encouraging an interest to develop, then that's the job done. Um, and I think we strive very hard for authenticity. The costumes that you see people wearing are authentically researched. Um, and some of them will talk to you for days about it. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's got a, an integrity to it, which we're really proud of and very strict on. Um, you won't find any nylon on site. You know? <laughs> um, so really, it's about creating, entertaining people, um, lets them enter into it voluntarily. We're not teaching but there is some education in there. It's kind of educating whilst having fun, as opposed to having fun whilst educating. Brilliant, thank you. I mean, are there any parts of the event that you're particularly proud of, or that you think have done really well this year? Uh, well, we've got some new additions this year. The Victorian fairground gallopers are creating that, uh, that, 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 well, that impression of a, a Victorian showground where we've got sideshows alongside it and so forth. Uh, that's gone down particularly well. Uh, the main arena shows, of course, are always popular, especially the World War II with the explosions and, uh, and aeroplanes. Uh, and obviously, with the cloud cover that we have, we're very, very pleased we were able to fly the aeroplanes yesterday and they made a magnificent impact. There's something very emotive about uh, World War II aeroplanes. Um, so I think we're very proud of that. But what the overall theme is, is 2,000 years of English history. So we really are going into the prehistory as well. We've got cave paintings for children to do. Uh, we're looking at Bronze Age, and it goes right through, as I say, to the 1940s. So we've got most of the epic periods of English history represented this weekend. We've got a full time span. There are no gaps. Fantastic. And in terms of next year's event, what do you hope to improve on next year, or perhaps do more of? Well, we always we always debrief events, and we always look to how we can do things better how we can uh, improve that spectacle, um, but also keeping true to the story, true to the narrative, true to the uh, uh, presentation. Um, clearly next year, we've got the centenary of the Great War. So we're going to be really looking into that. We've also got then coming up in years to come, the anniversary of Waterloo, Magna Carta. Uh, so there's lots of anniversaries coming up, and of course, Agincourt as well in, uh, uh, in 2015. So we're always trying to come up with new ideas. And also our performers, our reenactors, um, feed information to us and feed that creativity as well. So it's um, an open book. Uh, uh, and we see where we can go next year. But I don't want to give too much away, do I? This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So you two have just come out of the Gladiator um, arena. Yeah. Uh, what have you What have you been doing? Was it just the two of you, or what was What was going on? Yes, yeah, so I was fighting as a. I was, my name is Ferox. I fight as a Retiarius. Yep. That's my partner Drusus. Drusus, I'm a secutor. So can you explain the difference between the two? So Retiarius, he's the net man. He's the man with the net and the trident. Yep. Rete is the Latin for net. Yep. Secutor, on the other hand. Secutor is basically I'm his prey. Oh, okay. <laughs> You got the short straw that, there. Exactly. I mean, that's that's basically where I am. I'm uh, my main opponent would be the, the Retiaris. Okay. And um, can you just yeah, can you just explain to so how you you would fight each other? Normally, yeah. So my my helmet has mm-hmm. a crest on it, which helps the net slide off. Right. So I'm less likely to get fouled in it. Um, very rounded fin. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, typical of the uh, of a fish, basically, the, the dorsal fin of the fish. Yeah. Um, I have a Gladius as my main arm, obviously half scutum, yep. and uh, an arm guard. Okay. Um, that's, it. that's my armament. Um, the Retiarius is, is one of the lightest armed gladiators. He has no helmet, uh, has a padded arm and leg guard on his, uh, on his trident side, yep. uh, and he has a, what's called a gallerus, a big uh, metal plate on his uh, left left shoulder to protect yep. the side of his head when he goes in for the thrust with the um, with the trident on his right side the net side yep. he's got virtually nothing at all because he needs a maximum amount of agility to wield the net yeah okay and would that have been a, obviously not today but would it have been a fight to the death in the in, in not range? necessarily um, gladiators were expensive to keep for a start yeah and to train and yep. to train so um, although we see a lot of deaths in the arena here yeah it wasn't quite as bad as that obviously there were deaths from afterwards from injuries that were sustained yep. um, but it wasn't quite as, as, as bloodthirsty as it has been today Gladiators also had first class medical care yes okay um, it's the equivalent of taking uh, if you think about killing or having a bloodthirsty arena where you kill lots of gladiators the equivalent of taking a Formula One car into a derby or a rally. Right. <laughs> you know, you've invested a lot of time and, uh, and you know, developing and uh, training uh, your whole team. You wouldn't just want to, unless you were, con- um, you were to be compensated generously by the um, the host of the games. Okay. And so, who would decide who the winner of of this type of um, battle? You've got. Uh, in modern day, you uh, in sports, you tend to have one side versus another mm. side. In the arena, it was more likely it would be 
whoever fought best, you won the hearts of the crowd. Like in the film Gladiator, it, um, um, Oliver Reed's character says that you win the crowd, you win your freedom. You, know, yeah. you're, you wanted to win the crowd, it was theatre. Yep. So it wasn't one side of the arena would be cheering, another one. Okay. Obviously, there were favourites. The crowds picked their own gladiator, their own champion, basically. Yeah. Um, which they would support. I mean, there's graffiti all over Pompeii where the gladiators' names are actually scratched, and they're, mm. the, they're the people that they supported particularly and stood behind. So, do you think these were two of the, the best sort of gladiators to be? Um, were the ones that, you know, were their fights to the death, you know, that type of thing? The Romans had a very sick sense of humour, so obviously you've got the, the Retiarius, who is very lightly armoured, would be fighting someone who's very heavily armoured. It was a heavy kind of handicap. Um, every, all the different um, gladiators, they represent peoples that the Roman Empire has conquered. They represent mm. something. So the helmets are very big and... Um, They've become more stylized very, as, the, as the time's gone mm. on, basically. Um, so when you're looking at a distance, you could see, oh, that was the Mamilla, that's the Secator, that's the Retiarius. You are identifiable from a distance. Yeah. Um, and so being better, it would be... Uh, more down to your, your physique, obviously the Retiarius is the only type of gladiator that you know was allowed to run, um, right, so okay. he'd be very much lithe. If you are of a bulkier, stronger nature, uh, you would be more heavily armoured, so most, a lot of it could have been down to physical type. Okay. And what sort of gladiators do you have? Are you representing this weekend? Who do you, you have? There's a wide spectrum here. We've got about four, seven or eight classes here. Okay. Uh, provocateur. Secutor, they're two very similar classes. They're, mm -hmm. they're stylized on the Roman uh, centurion, obviously the Retiaris. Um, we have a Mamillo. Yeah. It was the, the fish man, the provocator, uh, it was the provoker, Secutor was the seeker or the chaser. Yeah, uh, we have a hop. Uh, Hoplomarchus, yeah. who was um, Greek style. Right. He had uh, a smaller, rounder shield that was strapped to his arm, a spear, and then a backup sword. Okay. It was based on a cavalry unit. Yes. And we've got a couple of slaves. A couple of slaves. Okay. <laughs> what was their role? Um, deaths, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there would be no money invested in training. They'd be given some swords and then go on. They just sort of uh, yeah. do your best. Last, for the... last man standing. Right, okay. Obviously, if they survive, then they may get further training after that. Okay. Bit of a testing ground. Yeah. Really. And what sort of um, reaction have you had from the crowds? Do you think it's, is it similar to that which, you know, gladiators would have experienced, you know, years it, ago? It's very similar to that on reality shows today. Right, okay. Baying for blood. People yeah. uh, don't tend to vote for Vitae or uh, no. they, they want to uh, they shout out Ugula. They want to see blood. They want yeah. to see people squirm. So, probably not that different to how it w would have been, really. People haven't changed, we've found in yeah. our. <laughs> we like to think children. <laughs> we like to think that we're uh, uh, we've evolved, and yeah. we're yeah, we're not. But the, the basics are still, you know, still there, isn't it? Um, and you, you're sporting some wounds, both of you. Are they? They are. Um, they're not real, I assume. Yeah, from our special effects. So. They're very realistic. Very realistic. It's a very good job. Yeah. One of the most popular speakers at this year's event was the MP Chris Skidmore, whose recent book, Bosworth, The Birth of the Tudors, explores the importance of the 1485 battle to England's history. I caught up with Chris to find out more about his talk. So what are you up to today then? Well, I'm here um, speaking at History Live tent on uh, Bosworth. Um, the book's been out for two months, and so I thought I'd come down. It's been it's incredibly topical with the uh, discovery of Richard III, so uh, looking forward to uh, an exciting event. Excellent. Do you do many of these types of things? Yeah, I try to. I mean, it's a, it's all sort of like 
compare it to being you know just like doing a gig really mm. you know once, once a book comes out you really want to try and get out there since the book's been published I think I've done nearly 20 events and wow. I sort of calculated okay. I've spoke, I actually addressed over 1,500 people <laughs> since uh, since it's coming out but I think it's it's now pops something that historians have to do to get out there and to meet people it's part of the job in a sense yeah, yeah. And, and one of the other really interesting things about it is you, you know, give a talk and uh, got a slideshow and but actually the questions you get sometimes the audience picks up things I really wish that then suddenly thought, oh you know if I could have added that to the book absolutely so so in a way it's really good to have the feedback from people uh, you know as a historian often you're stuck doing the sort of academic world of, of thinking about the sources and, and sometimes someone will pose a question and then you think oh, so, yeah no, absolutely you're, mm. you're I wish I'd thought of that. Okay. Have you ever added something to a later book because, you know, or added something to a subject that someone said to you at an event like this? Yeah, I mean, there's always the chance, you know, a book comes out in hardback and then it normally runs as a hardback for about a year mm. before then it goes into paperback. And there's always then the chance to make small corrections uh, which people have picked up on the stuff. So I've already fed to the publishers a couple of things so, where someone said to me, hang on a second, Chris, I'm not sure if that's absolutely right here. So I'm really grateful when uh, readers um, can pick up stuff and, yeah. and, and get in contact me. Brilliant, thank you. And talking about the event more generally, how important is it for people to have an awareness of England's heritage, do you think? Well, I think events like this, if you go back five years, they just weren't around. And it's and it's staggering. You've got, obviously, History Live here. Uh, there's Chalk Valley History Festival. And they're sort of popping up everywhere. And they are packed. Mm. I mean, I've always struck sort of thinking, oh, who wants to come to events like this? But they're a great day for the family to come out as well. And obviously you've got sort of, I can see where I am now, a field of reenactors and their tents. And I think it's important for people not just to look at history as sort of dry, something they read in a book, but to actually experience mm. and actually to have events like this where you can make history come alive as it were um, I think is, is, is great and I hope this will you know, continue and these events will go from strength to strength Chris Kidmore's book is out now published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson With the event drawing to a close I spoke to architectural historian and English Heritage's chief executive Simon Thurley whose recent book Men from the Ministry explores the figures who have played a vital role in securing England's heritage throughout the past century He told me about his heroes and the issues that the heritage industry currently faces. So, how's the day gone, do you think? Uh, Incredible day. Fantastic. Obviously, the weather held out, which is very important. (laughs) Things last year we had to cancel it because it was pouring with rain. Yes, yeah. But, you know, it's so great. I mean, both English Heritage and the BBC History magazine both believe that history is a living, live, exciting thing that you can participate in. And you just feel close to the heartbeat of history. And it sounds like a total cliche to say it, but here you really do feel it. Brilliant. I mean, are are, are there any parts of it that you're particularly proud of or you think have done really well? Well, I think this year we've tried to give it a much more sort of chronological structure. So uh, the whole area is divided up uh, chronologically so that you can get a, a, a look at everything from the Saxons right round to the uh, Second World War. Oh. And um, it, first of all, enables you to get to places, but also just helps you grasp the sort of continuity of, of English history, which is tremendous. That's really good. I mean, in terms of the event generally, why do you think it's so important? I think it's important uh, because this place is full of families and it gives children an opportunity to realise that history isn't boring. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, in your book, you talk about some of the heroes of yours who built up the heritage industry over the past hundred years. I mean, who stands out for you as being you know, particularly important? Uh, undoubtedly, the, uh, my oldest, uh, most distant predecessor, the first, uh, first Chief Inspector of Ancient Monuments, C.R. Piers, um, who had this incredible sort of swashbuckling approach to 
rescuing heritage. I mean, he was the, one of the, amongst the first people to do it. And um, he literally, single-handedly, um, rescued hundreds and hundreds of monuments. And uh, you know, we look up to him today and think, gosh, how did they do it? Mm-hmm. Is anyone more recent as well that you would highlight? Has... Well, I think actually, funnily enough, uh, the first chairman of English Heritage, Lord Montague, is a remarkable character. He's still alive. He's quite old. But he is the man who invented everything that we see here today. He's the person who really started to say, history should be something that's experienced. And let's get people dressed up. Let's put them on horses. Let's get them bashing each other with fake swords, because this is the way to be people to get excited about it. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Um, and um, in terms of uh, the challenges that I suppose the heritage industry faces at the moment, what would you say the main ones were? Well, quite a lot of them are related to the economic state of the country, really. Um, There are some very difficult problems that we have in terms of derelict areas, incredibly run-down parts of the north of England, where there are great industrial heritage sort of crumbling away and people can't think of what we're going to do with it. And I think that... um, you know, we are a bit of a crisis point, particularly as far as our industrial heritage is concerned. No one's, it, yes, there are parish churches and things that are in peril. Yeah. The things that are really in peril is, is the heritage of the last 150 years. Okay. How do you think we can help solve that problem? Gosh, yeah, that's a really big question. Uh, apart from the economy improving, which will help it matters um, enormously, I think the really key thing is to prioritise and to identify the stuff that's really important and then focus on trying to save that stuff. How do you hope the event will um, develop next year? Um, well, I, I, I think that English Heritage and the event are going to continue our very, very strong theme of championing uh, English history okay. and helping people understand it and get fun out of it and enjoy it um, and experience it at the places where it happened, because okay. that's what we're about. That was Simon Thurley talking about what the future holds for English Heritage. Huge thanks to him and, of course, to all the historians and reenactors that we spoke to throughout the event. Thank you, too, to Charlotte Hodgman, Sarah Lambert, Suzanne Frank, Emma Lashwood, and everyone else who helped with the recordings used in this week's episode. If you'd like to see a gallery of images from the event, head to historyextra.com slash historylive. And that's almost all for this week. Just a quick reminder that, if you'd like to come along and hear talks from leading historians, extra tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend Festival, taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of October. We've seen huge demand and we're delighted to announce that some of the weekend's events will now take place in a larger venue, the beautiful Malmesbury Abbey. This means that we can now offer for sale tickets for some of the events that were previously sold out. For full details and ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. Next time, Sarah Foote will be exploring the rise of English Christianity and I'll be talking to former Home Secretary Douglas Hurd about his new book on Benjamin Disraeli. I hope that you can join us for that. Don't forget that we'd love to hear from you. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. We're also, of course, on Twitter at History Extra and on facebook.com slash History Extra. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and Kalmarsh Hall and produced by Jack Fletcher.